Welcome everybody to Monday Night Live. My name is Derek Arden and I'm delighted that you're all with us tonight. So today I've got uh, Dom Weldon, who uh, was a captain in the uh, Royal Marines. He served in Iraq, Afghanistan, and then worked for the hedge fund BlackRock and then for Citigroup and now runs his own training company. I think there are three challenges there that uh, none of us have uh, probably ever done uh, from uh, from serving in some very dangerous places to working for very dangerous organizations to running your own business welcome dom thanks for joining us it's a great pleasure for you to be here with us thanks derek and good evening everyone don the first question i really want to ask you is why did you join the royal marines that sounds a bit um to me a bit scary yeah, uh, perhaps. So, start off quite a young ambition of mine. I came from a forces family. My parents were, were Royal Air Force, um, and my brother, six years older, wanted want to be in the parachute regiment. So, when I was a young kid, I was like, "What's what's the same but different?" And the Royal Marines came up in conversation, and that really kind of set a, light, a, a lifetime dream as a, as a as a kid to be a Royal Marine. Went to university. I looked into it a bit more a bit more in detail and realized that it's actually quite tough so went off it for a few years <laughs> and uh but age 23 figured um it's, it's what i wanted to do and i think as well quite a shaping theme throughout this was was kind of 9 11 which happened when i was 14 uh, the iraq invasion happened when i was 16 so kind of growing up seeing that in the press um and you know it's the height of the afghan campaign 2010 when i actually joined so um i suppose wanting to test myself challenge myself in that domain was the kind of the key the key motivator for joining yeah okay brilliant now um you know people on the show know that i'm a bit of a railway buff there's a railway station between exeter and um and the coast called limpston commando and when i've been through it it says don't get off here and implies you might get shot by the commandos um is that right and is that where you did your training you're quite right there's about five civilians get shot there every year so uh <laughs> <laughs> no I'm joking uh it's uh you can obviously yeah get, get on and off it but you're quite right it's limpson commando it's the commando training center's very own train station uh and you arrive uh for training on day one you get you step off the train with your ironing board and your bags and get met by a pretty imposing drill sergeant who then uh, who takes you from there but um yeah commando train center it's, it's just nestled between exeter and and exmouth on the on the river x on the mudflats and uh that's where the fun happens yeah and so what training did you have to do? I can't imagine what it was like. I imagine it was like two years of, you know, running up and down mountains and hills and uh, et cetera, et cetera. Tell us about that. Yeah, I think you, you look back and rose tinted glasses, don't you? But um, I had the pleasure of going back to Limpston, actually on the training staff uh, a few years into my career and taking recruits through training, which, which gave me a good insight on both, both levels. But Essentially, it's a 32-week course for young Marines or recruits because they become Marines, and it's double that for young officers. So, 15 months from front to back was my officer training, uh, and it, it basically prepares you from civilian on day one to uh, lead a troop of 30 Royal Marines commandos on frontline operations the day after you pass out of training. So, it's a it's a pretty intense uh, period, and I'd say there's kind of two main angles they're looking at. One is to make you physically robust. Um, the way the UK forces is is uh, structured, uh, three commando brigade made up of the Marines and 16 air assault brigade made up of the paras are the first into action in any kind of theatre entry, large number forces. So we are typically going forward uh, and conducting combat operations when there is no 
logistical support or, 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 or large presence on the ground, which requires um, clearly a certain level of fitness and robustness to, to deal with be it the jungle, the desert, Arctic, whatever the, the environment is. So that's a large part of training. And the second part of training is certainly for officers is getting you ready to lead 30 Marines on operations. So uh, everything from understanding tactics to, to small team leadership to understanding your role, plugging that troop of 30 into a larger organization, conducting operations, pulling in assets from fast air support to helicopters to mortars to artillery. So the, the, the learning curve is pretty steep. Um, approximately 64 officers start training every year at Limston. And around about half of that pass out of training. So we, we were one of 30, or I was one of 30 to pass out in 2011. So, um, wow. yeah, fun, but, fun yeah. but challenging. Congratulations on that. Do they, do the other 30 get sort of dismissed as the weeks go by? They just get sort of let go? It's kind of three reasons you fall out of training. The first is you, you volunteer through or you pull yourself off. Um, can be quite taxing uh, and it's easy to get into a kind of dark space. So a, a lot of guys just pull themselves off. Um, the other one is, is physical injury uh, because there's only one batch of officers go through every year. If you get injured, you can't just hang around. So they, they withdraw you. Um, and then the, the third is there's various tests throughout the year, physical and mental. And again, if you, if you don't pass those, you, you get pulled out. But um, I suppose, you know, what, what, why is that interesting to this group? I suppose my key learning from training and certainly when I was, back on the staff taking young recruits through the eight month version was um, the power of your attitude and your mindset. Because the big guys, the big rugby guys aren't necessarily the big guys, the ones who pass training. And it became really interesting to me at Citibank that typically businesses hire for, for skills and knowledge uh, and they run into problems with teams due to attitude and mindset. And actually at Limston, uh, yes, there's a there's a there's a basic level we need your ability to retain information because training's pretty pretty hard. But through all the selection and training process, the main thing we're looking for is attitude and mindset because uh, you know decades of experience on operations has shown us that that's that's what counts when the when it gets sticky. Uh, it's not necessarily the guy who can shoot the shoot the best and run the fastest that helps you overcome that challenge. Sure, I get that totally. Okay, well that's fantastic. Let's move on then. So was it Iraq or Afghanistan first and? Uh... How old were you when you were leading 30, uh, 30 commandos in uh, one of those countries? So Afghanistan was my first tour. Uh, I was nine months out of training at that point, uh, and I'd been with my troop that I was deploying with uh, for those nine months. I had a good, decent beat-up period. I turned uh, 25 when I was there, um, and that was, you know, the stuff you join the Marines for, frankly, and uh, stuff you see in movies. I was running, on the, running off the back of helicopters at sort of four o'clock in the morning, uh, doing assaults on compounds it was um, yeah exactly why you joined the Marines frankly um, the, the what I would caveat with that with you know the time I was in Afghan was towards the tail end of the campaign so the kinetic war fighting i.e firefights on in big open fields had, had ceased by then and the, the campaign or the Taliban's campaign had switched to the IEDs so improvised explosive devices so they would lay those in the ground hoping to trick us up blow us up um, and then they would try and infiltrate the Afghan army elements that we were partnered with um, and for essentially uh, pose insider threats. So the way we combated that on that tour, my company, the company I was part of, we every three or four nights would fly out on a deliberate operation to apprehend some part of that IED network, be it the bomb maker or the teams that were laying on the ground. So it was a very different tour, perhaps what you see on TV. Um, you know, ours was a far more deliberate 
we'd be planning ops three or four days, conducting rehearsals, and then in the dead of night, go on to the target. So the odds were very much stacked in our favour. Um, but yeah, doing a, I look back at a fairly young age, but at the time, you know, feel very um, well-equipped and well-trained to, to, to do what you're doing. And um, scary in some ways, but I'd say ex more exciting, frankly, uh, from, from what I felt. I was going to ask you how scared on a level of naught to 10 were you? It's interesting, right, because I've thought about this and I actually wrote a journal when I was out there and I've read some of it since and it's quite sobering how at the age of kind of 24 I'd, I'd, I'd considered and thought so much about life um, or, or, or the lack of it. And uh, it's interesting, you know, the, the one the thing I was scared about was a large amount of time existing between the moment I knew I was going to die and then dying. That period was what scared me. Wow. The idea of stepping an idea no longer being here was like, well, I'm not longer, I'm no longer here, so I'm not aware of me missing out on anything. Obviously, it's tough on my family and stuff, but the idea of getting shot or blown up immediately and killed um, wasn't a concern, frankly. Um, what scared me and most of the guys was, you know, waking up and realizing you've got a life-changing injury that you've got to deal with for the rest of your life, or that kind of slowly bleeding out, knowing you, you know, and then, um, yeah, yeah that's, that's that's the reality, frankly. And what about your 30 men? Did you lose any of those? And uh, did any of those get tripped up on IEDs, et cetera? Can you tell us that or not? Yeah, of course not. No, uh, sorry, of course not, yeah. Um, luckily, no, uh, on my tour, in my troop, there were no casualties. We had casualties in the battle group. So 40 Commando was an 800 strong uh, group that deployed and we had uh, a number of KI uh, killed in action then, unfortunately, um, which does change things because, and again, we talk a lot about companies now about visualization and, and the importance of, going through issues and problems as, as they arise. And that was a lot of work we did on before we deployed because a lot of lads were excited. I mean, I was excited to get out to Afghan, but you know, we were all mature enough to realize that naivety is gonna, gonna disappear pretty quickly when, when guys start getting killed. And then how do you deal with that? Because you've still got to go out on ops day after day, week after week. And um, you know, little things like you can't attend the funeral of the guy who's been killed because he gets repatriated to the UK and you're still out there fighting. So little things like that. and and talking it through and visualizing not if it happens when it happens because it was an expectation we were going to have a higher casualty rate than we did uh, and so having the ability to visualize talk it through consider what would happen how we'd go about it helped in the instance that it did I mean the first guy that killed was Dave O'Connor he was um, in our Bravo company which is basically the same place as us um, and it did it, it affected everyone's outlook and mindset but again that ability to Visualize and, and anticipate your feelings is important, mm. but also your why. And this is something that's kind of hit home with me working at BlackRock and Citibank and the importance of having a sound purpose or, or, or really strong alignment with the why of what you're doing, I think it's critical because we went to Afghanistan at a time when Barack Obama had told everyone we were withdrawing, which obviously in a fight against an enemy isn't the best negotiating tactic. Um, and so, guys were, were pretty downbeat, you know, well, why are we going here, boss? Why are we going to risk our lives when we know in two years we'll be withdrawing and the Taliban are going to take over Afghanistan? What are we doing? What are we even doing here? Hmm. And so spending a bit of time with them to really ascertain what is our why? What, what, why are we as a group of 30 deploying? And how are we going to deal with deaths and casualties as they occur? How are we going to stay motivated to go out the door day after day, run off the back of a helicopter every night? Um, was important work and it paid dividends doing it. Wow, yeah, what a challenge. What a mental challenge as well. Um, I see that uh, we are letting the Afghanistan interpreters into the country now after a huge battle. That seems to be absolutely the right thing to do, doesn't it, Don? 
I think so. Those guys, um, I mean, it, they often came from different parts of Afghanistan, but, but, but nevertheless, uh, they put huge trust in the West um, and, 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 and really risked not just their own lives, but their families' lives in supporting us. Um, so, yeah, long, long overdue, frankly, as with the Gurkha uh, issue a few years ago, I think. Uh, but, yeah, good to see those guys are getting supported because, you know, it's, it's all well and good, us going out there, uh, and risking our lives because we're trained for it, we're well equipped, and frankly, we've got a rifle to shoot back. Those guys were unarmed, just sat in our patrols, um, hoping that we'd get them out of out of stick. Um, and uh, phenomenal guys. You know, I, I stayed very close to my interpreter. He actually emigrated to the US about five years ago. He's in San Francisco now, and um, yeah, really, really brave guys. And and often students. They'd come down their summer holidays from Kabul and earn some money. It's, it's mental, really. Yeah. Yeah. Oh, wow. That's something. Now you tell me that uh, you were with um, 62 Americans and you were only one of uh, two Brits that were being commanded by an American general. Um, you were telling me that that was really interesting, the different cultures. Um, what can you share with the group on that? Yeah, so I was uh, privileged enough to deploy to Baghdad at the height of the ISIS campaign. I was embedded um, in the highest kind of US special forces headquarters and they governed all special forces operations in Iraq at the time. Um, and it was an interesting space because we didn't have any boots on the ground fighting ourselves. It was all through partnered. So we are partnered with Iraqi special forces, the Iraqi tribes and the, uh, and the Iraqi army. Um, and yeah, I mean, Americans love you guys, Tim, you're, 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 you're cut from a different cloth, but I mean, there's so many similarities and, uh, I learned a lot about American football. I learned a lot about steaks and cooking a good steak out there. Um, but I guess actually there is a really interesting way of, of, of operating. And it was a completely different perspective for me. In Afghan, I was frontline, running off the back of helicopter, 30 guys. I mean, there's no one in front of us. So when I was in Iraq, I was at the highest headquarters there is with four layers of headquarters below us before you got the guys partnering with the Iraqis on the ground. So a real... Um, different experience, frankly, a lot more comfortable. I was having steak every night and uh, lobsters and uh, believe it or not, lobsters in central Baghdad and showering. And it was, it was, it was nice uh, playing some American football on the weekend. Um, but what, something that really blew me away actually was how forward leaning and, and, and open the senior officers were. And I, sort of case in point, my commanding general was a one-star general brigadier. Um, so that's kind of four ranks above me at the time. And um, in meetings, we would, would often go around down to my level, asking for our input, um, casing out ideas, bouncing ideas back and forth. And that, that blew me away, really, um, because I think certain parts of the, the British military can still be quite hierarchical. Um, so, and, and it was a real meritocracy. I mean, rank almost in the headquarters, rank almost counted for nothing. It was the value you added, which was, which was refreshing. Um, could be quite embarrassing for some of the senior officers, unfortunately, but uh, uh, I found it really, really interesting. And there was another general, I think I spoke to you, Derek, about before, uh, he blew me away. He, he, uh, he was at one time the commanding officer of Delta Force, which is the, uh, the US's premier tier one kind of uh, special forces unit. And he came into theater, uh, Texan, got a really long, no, it's not, 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 not Texan, from Louisiana, really long Southern drool, um, came into theatre, said, guys, I know very little, guide me, you know, I'm going to be asking tons of questions. Um, and so when I first met him, I thought, oh, God, who have they put in charge of this, this unit? 
but over time, you could just tell by how, 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 how well he listened and the questions he asked um, what he was doing. His emails would finish at midnight and start at 4 a.m. So he worked till kind of three and a half hours sleep a night. Uh, when he was visiting in Iraq, um, I used to get up at five to go do my fizz. He was just finishing his, uh, his fizz circuit in the morning. And what I absolutely loved in his, his um, all-round meeting in the morning, and, and this started with Stan McChrystal actually with, the, with, with defeating uh, Al-Qaeda in Iraq, he realised that the hierarchical military structure doesn't pass information quick enough. So he started this um, decentralising decision-making to the nth degree, but also having an all-informed communication network. So everyone in theatre would dial into a daily meeting and so information would share, get shared a lot quicker across the, across the network. And we had something similar. And after every meeting, bearing in mind we're talking about defeating ISIS here, so you can imagine that the topics were pretty, pretty, pretty gnarly and pretty, um, pretty direct at times. He would finish off with his comments on what he wanted, you know, uh, guidance on that day or decisions that he wanted to get queued up for. And he would tell us what he's reading. And at the time he was reading Creativity Inc., which is all about Pixar. And it just blew my mind that this guy is running, you know, he, he, he was the one above my boss, so he was in charge of Syria as well. He was running the campaign, Iraq and Syria, and imagine that's not enough information to get by. He made time out of his day to learn about the Pixar story and what lessons he could apply from that to the campaign. So yeah, blown away, frankly, by working with some of the Americans. I thought they were fantastic. And um, what was the, um, I probably asked you this, but can you share what the scariest thing was? Was it with an IED? Was it um, in Afghanistan? Was it in Iraq? Yes, yeah, so I didn't have any, didn't have too many hairy moments in Iraq, to be honest. Um, Afghan, there are a few. I think the scariest probably would have been my first time on the ground. Um, you know, we, we knew we were going forward to be a, a deliberate operations company, as I mentioned. So we're typically having three to four days to plan our operation, rehearse it to the nth degree, and then deploy on the ground. Um, the first time we, we actually called out. Uh, was in response to um, a young Gurkha officer getting shot and killed, unfortunately, a few kilometres down the road. So very little planning, thrown in the back of a vehicle, here's a map, kind of figure out when you get there. Uh, and so that was a bit of a baptism of fire. And we bounced out on the ground within, I think, an hour of the incident to try and uh, locate the individual. When we're uh, unfortunately not successful, but that was uh, a, bit, a bit surreal as well from seeing it on TV so much. Um, you know, pretending Salisbury Plain in Wiltshire is Afghanistan for a few exercises and then actually stepping out the back on and you realise, wow, I'm stood in Helmand, Afghanistan. It's a, a bit surreal. And then I think not that same patrol, but a few patrols later, um, we would have a, a radio that could, could listen to what the Taliban was saying. It's called the ICOM radio. So our, our interpreter would have that radio listen to them the whole time. We'd actually listen to what all the insurgents were talking about around us and they knew we were listening. So sometimes they would you know, pretend that they're attacking us and they wouldn't. So after a while, you kind of uh, don't take too much notice of it. But I remember the, the very first time, I, uh, all the guys in my patrol, 10 of us were, were kneeled down and I walked to the, to the back to speak to someone and I came back uh, walking along the line and Sam, the interpreter, probably not his real Afghan name, but he went by Sam. Um, he said, uh, he, he just started chuckling. I said, oh, what, what, what are they saying? And they said, um, Oh, they've just identified you as the commander walking back up the patrol and they're planning to, uh, to take a shot at you. And so that was a bit of a, that was a bit of a, uh, you know, moment for me. <laughs> um, but again, they're very good at kind of, um, you know, saying, saying things to freak you out and getting you to move and do things. So over, over time, you, get, you got used to that. 
Wow. But, uh, wow, wow. Yeah. Okay, I'm sure there'll be some questions in the chat box for you about that, but let's turn the, um, let's turn the clock forward now to uh, leaving, um, leaving the Royal Marines, which must have been a big decision for you, and turning up at a, and a, the biggest hedge fund in the world, if BlackRock is, is a hedge fund, I don't know what you call it, but it's certainly got the biggest number of assets I read in the Financial Times two weeks ago. Um, that must have been a culture shock for you. It was, yeah. So BlackRock is an asset manager, if you if you um, terminology wise, but it's uh, they've got nine trillion under management. Yeah, which is I know they're a household name in the U in the US, but not many people in the UK have heard of them. But they sit behind pretty much most of your pensions, insurance funds, and um, and a lot of kind of retail investment vehicles. Um, so yeah, interesting. Uh, I, I I did a short stint at BlackRock five weeks, sorry, five months, um, and then moved to Citibank to to go on their sales and trading platform. And I think. In fairness, in, 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 in BlackRock, I was part of a very small team, didn't really see much of the inner workings of, of the firm, whereas at City, I was exposed to, to more. And yeah, it was a bit of a culture shock, frankly, because you, you go from an organisation that is so culture-driven and so values-driven and, and leadership and, and teams and high performance are central to everything we do. Uh, and then I found myself on, on the trading floor of, a, of an investment bank, which... Um, uh, is, is very different, <laughs> to put it mildly. Um, you know, the, the structures are incentivized differently, right? So it's all about the individual. Um, and by their own admission, you know, there's, there's, there's limited leadership training goes in for managers. Uh, and typically managers are, are highlighted by being the most profitable on their desk. So you can imagine over time and, and promotions that, could, that can lead to, um, you know, with the best will in the world, people who just perhaps aren't that strong at leadership uh, but also on, on a sliding scale, some pretty toxic behaviour. Mm. Um, so that, that, that was an interesting kind of culture shock from there, certainly coming from an environment where, you know, my senior officers, people I genuinely looked up to uh, and were students of leadership from the, from the day they joined the, the Marines. Um, so it was a bit different. I think what was really interesting to me, though, um, that side were that the challenges faced by the business were identical to that in the Marines. You know, ultimately, in a large organisation, how do we cascade communication? How do we cascade intent down the levels, balancing alignment with autonomy? Because ultimately you want the frontline units to have fairly autonomous uh, remit, um, but you need them to be aligned. And it was really interesting in the bank because I saw kind of both extremes. I saw business units that were very aligned, but ultimately micromanaged. And then there were busy business units that had a huge amount of autonomy, but were incredibly inefficient and often worked um, you know, in friction with other business units. So that, that really, frankly, was, the, was the, 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 the seed that kind of came up with the idea of the business. Um, and, it, and it shook me that, you know, you can actually apply some of these military concepts and frameworks and ideas to enhance business performance. You must have been sitting there in BlackRock and, um, and Citibank wondering what you were doing there, you know, without the adrenaline buzz and the testosterone flowing through your system. And all you could do is get a coffee. I guess, or something. Yeah. Some, of the, some of the guys in those businesses take something a bit stronger than that. I'm sure you didn't, but uh, you would have noticed some of them did. I think I think those days are gone. Uh, I, I didn't witness that. I don't, I don't think it's Wolf of Wall Street anymore. But um, uh, no, and I've only got myself to blame for that. You know, I was very naive and I didn't do my, my groundwork and homework before I went into the industry. And I thought that the trading floor from what I'd seen on movies and stuff would, would give me the buzz that operations did. Um, you know, that's just... Yeah, and, and many military guys have and continue to to um, excel there and love it. It just ultimately, I think it wasn't for me. 
but it was great because it highlighted to me that you know where my passions do lie in the leadership and team space working with people working with teams um and and it highlights some as i said some really interesting challenges that are uh, you know once you take the guns and bullets away in afghan you know ultimately it's, it's people um working together to overcome problems you know it's identical stuff really uh, the language changes the context change but the, the processes and, and systems don't absolutely well, let's learn let's turn to the third part of your uh, business life uh, your training company and i know you were working with the welsh, welsh ladies football team a couple of weeks ago um tell us about uh, tell us about both of those um issues yeah, so the, the, the company, the, the idea was, was to launch the company was really to get back into that leadership and team space the, where I like to operate and frankly where my interests and passions lie. Um, and I've partnered with a, a fair few people who have been in that space longer than I. Um, and the idea is that we work with teams uh, and leaders across all levels of the organisation to enhance their productivity and how they work together, how they communicate, how they cascade intent, how they cascade direction through levels. Um, and the big kind of focus, I suppose, is closing the, the strategy execution gap. So this idea that the top end of a company, I can't the strategy, but by the time it gets down to the frontline units, it's kind of been lost through mid-management. Mm. And those frontline units are often not aligned. They're not pulling the same direction. They're not thinking themselves as one team. You end up very siloed, functional silos. So it's really applying military concepts, uh, one of which being mission command. Tim will know all about this, but this is really how we cascade intent down levels of organization so every every leader if you like will tell his subordinates or his team that this is the direction we're going this is the what we need to achieve this is the end state we're looking at and depending on how senior he is the the the, the uh, finite nature of that end goal is, is changes clearly um so very clear on the what we need to achieve really important to say the why this is why you're doing what you're doing this is why it's so critical this, this is why uh, you know, your part in the plan means mission success. Um, very clear on what constraints exist. So it might be resources, it might be space, it might be time. Um, but otherwise, everything's freedom. Uh, go. And, and what that does is, A, it, A, it allows directions to come down very quickly because um, essentially you're just passing your intent, being clear on constraints and freedoms. But interestingly as well, it makes that level below suddenly own the problem because they're not being told how to do it. They're being told, what they have to do in terms of the end result the end goal the result to achieve but they're not being told uh, how to go about it so they look in the problem they understand the problem they build up their plan uh, they cascade that they get to know and understand the situation and then they go and execute and the other critical element of it is because if they get to it and they go in to do the mission or whatever and perhaps the mission is wrong or the mission was slightly uh, poorly you know uh, portrayed the end goal is not quite clear well, you understand why you're doing it. You understand the intent of levels above you, and you've been given the empowerment to go and do what it is you need to do. So Stanley Crystal was quite famous in the US and Iraq saying, you know, frontline units, when you get to your mission, if we've given you the wrong mission, do the mission you were meant to do, you should have been given. You know, and it's this idea that if you, if you understand the overall intent of the organization uh, and you're very clear on freedom constraints, then you are given the ability to own and execute in that space. And it, that by decentralizing decision making as close to the information space as possible, it also makes the individual agile. So when the situation changes, we're not stuck in the lurch. Um, so these ideas, these military concepts are what, what we're trying to apply to, to business organizations. And tell and us so, about tell yeah, us yeah, about yeah. this um, weekend you have with the uh, Welsh ladies football team. Um, I'm certainly very envious about that. I want to know more. 
So, um, what? Firstly, what a fantastic group of women, and I, I don't follow football, but I think I, I think I will just to see how they're getting on because um, this is a team who have never qualified for a European Championship or World Championship. So there, there's a real uh, lack of self belief there, and we were kind of uh, approached uh, someone I worked with, Scotty Mills, and he did this while he was still in the Marines with the English football team pre the Russia 2018 World Cup. They came down to the Commander Training Centre. Um, similar kind of thing, really. How do we bond the team and how do we make the team think as one? Certainly because in football, you've got these individuals, again, who have a club, uh, club level. When you get them together for a short period of time, how do you switch their mindset to play as one team for the country? And so with the, uh, with the Welsh women's football team, it was kind of belief was one part of it. Uh, and then values was another. And this, uh, you know, I mentioned to some people at the start of the call, but you know, the key, the key thing, if you like, what differentiates the Royal Marines commandos from, from most other regiments and, and gives us the reputation we have, isn't the rifles we fire or the, or, or the tests we do. You know, those are pretty standard across the military. It's the, it's the attitude and mindset, what we call the commando ethos. So there's these values that are kind of drilled into us through training uh, and lived and breathed through your life in the Corps. And these are not kind of, yeah, words on a poster, frankly. These are real values that people, that people live and breathe and you are assessed through your life in the Marines of, of reflecting them. So the commander spirit for us is courage, more, more, more so moral than physical. Uh, determination, the idea of never giving up. Unselfishness, so you, you put yourself last in the order of pecking order of everything. You look after your, your oppo, your opposite number, your, your buddy man, and then the team, and yourself last. And then the last kind of one is cheerfulness in the face of diversity. And that's the idea that when the chips are down, if you can crack a funny and crack a smile, you know, morale rises pretty quickly. And yeah, Tim will know that the moral component uh, of, of fighting power, um, i.e. how much people want to fight, is far more important than the physical um, or the conceptual, i.e. your doctrine or, or what tanks and rifles you have. So that kind of ethos is, is drilled into us, as I say, it reflects who, what, what it is we do and, and, and who we are. And we wear Royal Marines Commando flashes on our, on our shoulder. And, you know, the phrase is check flashes. So if you see someone stepping out of line, it's like check flashes. You know, look at your shoulder, remember who you are, what you stand for. So that's like a really big thing in the Marines and, and, and something we live and breathe by. Uh, and so the idea of the Welsh women's team is like, well, well, what are your values? And their values were family, respect and excellence. And we said, well, well what, what behaviours does that mean? You know, and so we spent a bit of time drawing out the behaviours that reflect those values. Um, we did some vulnerability tests with them, They're growing, um, increasing sort of their knowledge of one another and therefore their trust. I watched an interesting TED talk on trust. That said there's kind of three elements to make which makes you want to trust someone first is their ability to do the job what's well, a given because you're either a marine who's passed the test or you're a welsh football internationally you play football the second is benevolence does that person you know have your interests at heart do they care for you and third is they do they have integrity do they live by a set of values so that's the a lot of the kind of work we did was increasing the trust in one another um, and really kind of fix their positive mindset going into this world cup not in the mindset of you know can we qualify um, but you know, fix that to a to a when we will qualify. And again, something I used to do with recruits in in, in training. You know, they approach a big test. They'd be like, I don't know if I can pass the test. You know, it might be a certain distance with a certain weight on their back. And I said, you know, well, imagine you are now a Royal Marines commander and you're in Afghanistan, and the helicopters stop flying, and you have to cover that distance in that time, or the enemy's going to shoot you. Could you do it then? They said, Yeah, of course. Well, what's the difference? You know, it's it's, it's how you perceive it. It's how you're your mindset is that and shift that and then and then you can do it so that's the work we did with the welsh team so no football no balls getting kicked around but it's all uh it's interesting stuff how long was that a couple of days 
it was actually 36 hours, believe it or not. It felt a lot longer. Uh, we had three hours sleep in that 36 hours, so it was a bit intense. But um, it was, yeah, good, good wow. fun. Wow, wow, wow. Um, one or two things in the chat box. I'd like to translate uh, one or two of them um, for you. Uh, let's go. What was the average age of your team in Iraq or Afghanistan, Dom? That's a good one. I don't know the exact average. The, um, my troop sergeant, my right-hand man, essentially, he was 40. Uh, and then I had a couple of 18-year-olds in the troop. So I'd say my, my corporals, they're, the, they're, the, they're my three guys who command my, my three sections that make up the troop. They would have been mid-20s, late-20s. Um, and then Marines anywhere from 18, I think my oldest Marine was probably 25. So, great. Yeah, bit, bit um, in the range. Godfrey's um, the private investigator, and he, he says he hired many ex-military uh, uh, people to work for him, um, but they struggled to promote themselves to win new business, because that was all part of it, the selling bit. Is it fair to say that sales training is a big difference between the business and the military? What's that? Is in the promoting yourself, you mean? Yeah, sort of promoting yourself and selling, really. You know, you don't have to sell yourself in the military, although thinking about it, you probably do, don't you? You have to sell yourself to influence people. Yes, yeah, so there's, there's, two, there's two things that I think um, selling yourself comes really awkwardly to military. Um, humility is like one of our, one of our values and, um, and everything's we. You know, there's, there's no I in team and all that. So, um, you know, for my first few interviews, I was saying, oh, we did this, we did this. And she's like, oh, what did you do? And I said, oh, no, I did all those. But they're like, you know, in your, your mindset is to, 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 and so I think you have to get, you know, comfortable with, with bragging, uh, not bragging, but like, you know, yeah. highlighting your achievements, which comes quite uh, unusually, but quite, com com quite difficult. I mean, I, there's a, there's a friend of a friend in the, in the uh, SBS who sent me his CV to go over. And you'd think this guy just like, you know, manages the the computer at the at the base you know he's on frontline operations all around the world but yes it just doesn't sell it and um so it doesn't come naturally i think the second point is that sales as a role i actually think it's quite well suited to a lot of military guys because um you know one thing i think that gets stuff done in the military isn't, isn't so much rank believe it or not i know that's a common misconception but it's empathy and emotional intelligence um you know if on the front line if if i order you know, marine blogs to go and run across an alleyway and, and risk his life. You know, he's a human, right? He's not a robot. So uh, unless he buys into me and what we're doing and why we're doing it, he won't do it. So, um, you know, ironically, relying on rank to get stuff done. Um, you know, it, 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 you get stuck up on the, on the on on the worst time. You know, it's, it's easy to to do on a piece of time camp, but it just doesn't work on the front line. And so, emotional intelligence, empathy, I think, are really quite highly uh, developed in a lot of ex-military. So I think that's, that's why they find it quite easy in sales to, to relate to people and, uh, and understand things from their point of view and therefore sell them. Yeah, no, fantastic. Um, Don, we're coming to the end of the interview. Um, and thank you very much for joining us. Uh, I hope you'll join, stay on for uh, questions uh, afterwards. But if there was one thing, one message you'd like to leave with everybody here, for either for themselves, for people they mentor or coach, or for their children or their grandchildren or their great-grandchildren, what would the message be? Great-grandchildren. <laughs> I don't well, think I'm in a position to... Uh... To kind of share too much wisdom or, or insights but perhaps just something something perhaps people haven't thought of uh, and certainly something that i've seen in in black and city bank when when leading teams i think 
ultimately, if you can get people intrinsically motivated along the lines of what you want them to do, um, then you're gonna have you're gonna have more success. Uh, and then if we try and pick apart well, what makes up intrinsic motivation, uh, Daniel Pink wrote a really good really good book called Drive, and he highlights there to be three things. The first is um, autonomy, giving that person space and freedom to own their uh, task or work, whatever it is. The second is purpose, giving them really strong why, giving them a, a strong reason for what they're doing. Um, and the final one is mastery. And that doesn't necessarily mean uh, becoming a master at something is going to make you fit, but that room for growth and that room for constant development and that whole kind of growth mindset piece. So I think when leading teams, if you can focus on delivering and providing those three things, then you'll have someone who is intrinsically motivated and therefore you can avoid or you don't have to use all the carrots that that we we see through bonuses or, or the sticks through punishment and and the critically thing with 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 relying on extrinsic motivations such as carrot sticks is that they require you the boss to identify the challenge that needs to be done if people are intrinsically motivated then they're on the lookout for that themselves and they'll get things done while you're you know even not aware of it so that would be uh you know i feel awkward giving tips but that would probably be it if i had to I think it's a great tip, and I think you're probably selling yourself down the wisdom you have from uh, from working in Iraq, uh, being um, being a commando, and the leadership that you've had to uh, learn, deliver, pass on to other people is phenomenal. Uh, Dom, thanks for joining us, and uh, tell us the name of your company for anyone watching this, um, and how they get hold of you. It's Albany York, one word, uh, albanyyork.com. Um, and uh, you know, I put my email in the chat if anyone wants to drop me a line, dom.weldon at Albany York or on LinkedIn as well. So um be more than happy to have any discussions around this. I, I love talking about sort of stuff, so feel free to get in touch. Okay, Dom. Dom Weldon, thanks for joining me on the uh, Monday Night Chat Show. If you're watching this on YouTube on the Negotiators podcast, please uh, play or listen to it. Please like it and look forward to seeing everybody next week. Thank you, Dom. Cheers.